battling the relentlessly negative doom and gloom news media. It's the Nick Stenger Show. Coming to you live from the Stenger Family Office Headquarters, it's your host, Nick Stenger. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the 107th episode of the Nick Stenger Show. My name is Nick Stenger. We are the Stenger Family Office for the past 42 long years. It has been our mission to deliver both clarity and confidence to help secure your financial future. I am so glad you are back here each and every week to get the clarity and confidence, which is simply boiled down to data, math, statistics, the underlying reality of what's going on despite the media's doom and gloom, despite all the bad things you hear about, despite the talk of the banking crisis and everything that you see on the CNBC ticker tape flying across the screen 24-7, the nonstop doom and gloom tweets, alerts, all the stuff that is flying in constantly a distraction, in my opinion, to get you off of your plan. We want to be the one place that you can go each and every week and get the good news. Obviously, we are giving you the balls and strikes as we see them. We are calling things how we think they are, and we try to be right more than we are wrong. But underlying the message of the U.S. economy, of the human, resilient American spirit, is the fact that things do get better over time. So that's the guiding light we want to keep you going despite all the bad stuff. And there are some pieces of what may appear to be bad news. Again, this is episode 107. If you saw the weekly article, the title of the weekly article is layoffs are coming. And while that may seem like doom and gloom, and yes, there is some doom and gloom in that message, the broader point of what we're going to discuss today is that sometimes a recession, sometimes a rise, a slight rise in the unemployment rate is actually a positive for the overall stock market. Now, I have to just preface this episode by saying layoffs are sad, they're terrible, they're awful. Of, of course, from a worker standpoint, we don't want that to happen. But what we're going to cover, and you'll see quickly, is that a lot of companies during COVID overhired. The labor market got overly tight. A lot of businesses, in particular the big tech companies, hired double the workers that they really truly needed. Why did they do that? Because a lot of them really believed that work from home would stay forever. A lot of them believed that we would never go back to normal, that people would never get back on the saddle and go to an office. That has proved to not be true. While some people are going to stay home for a while, some people are going to continue to work remotely, and that's, of course, not a bad thing. It just depends on your job. A lot of the news coming out, a lot of the data suggests that people are being called back to work. And you're seeing a lot of the tech companies that built these beautiful, wonderful, nice campuses. And they're saying, we have these campuses that are unfilled. We want people to come back to work. So we are going to see some of that, I believe, return. You are going to see people make that uh, reappearance to the workplace. And as that has happened, of course, our company, our business, our group has always been back. We were shut down a little bit during COVID and now we're fully back. Um, it is hard to beat the collaboration. It's hard to beat some of that in person. Even if you're not there five out of five days a week, it is tough to train new people remotely. It's hard to get people to understand and feel like a team 
when people are spread out throughout the country. And you're seeing this broad scale. A lot of these, I, I think they were calling them Zoom towns, where people would move out of the big cities where it was expensive to live and crowded. And they would move out to, for example, the middle of nowhere or maybe Montana somewhere or something like that. These people, these go, these 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 Zoom towns are becoming almost not ghost towns, of course, but they're the populations are coming down as those folks return to the city. So this is just a broad trend that's happening. People are returning back to normal. But if you designed your business and you made business decisions only focused on what was happening during COVID, which by the way was hard not to do. COVID was a crazy thing. Um, obviously from a disease standpoint, terrible. It's wiped out so many people. It's been a horrible thing. Most of us have been affected by it in some way, shape, or form. And so people were genuinely concerned for good reason. Um, That changed a lot of industry. And you saw everybody was ordering from amazon.com. And a lot of people are still doing that. Now, of course, we're going to stores and things like that. But Amazon is not going anywhere, in my opinion, as far as the business model is concerned. Now, I'm not, don't take this as investment advice. I'm not saying to go buy Amazon stock. But what I am saying is this whole ordering online, whether it's Amazon or Walmart or Target, a lot of these stores that did not have a great online presence have been forced under COVID to adopt that. So there's some of that that's going to stay. I think that's a broad good thing for the economy. However, some of this stuff is going to go back to normal. And, and so we have clients, actually some who work on the ground floor of the Amazon warehouses. And they started saying, Nick, you know, these warehouses were built for millions of packages per day, and we're not even cracking a third of what they were built for. And when we started to hear that, we said, okay, this economy is probably going to slow down at some point. There's a metric, one of the guys on our team and I were talking about this, he brought up the point, there's even a metric that you can track boxes and how many uh, like shipping boxes are being created and produced, and that number has really slowed down too, which is sort of this leading indicator that there may be a slowdown coming to the broad economy. We have not really seen cracks emerge in the economy, and I would say the big number one area to watch reason why being the Fed is watching this is the labor market. The Fed is watching labor, I believe, like a hawk. Now, I don't know Jerome Powell, never been in a room with him, don't know him personally or anything like that. But what I will tell you is if you watch the Fed meetings and you read the minutes and what they put out, they are watching labor and and they haven't been overly impressed with having a 3.4 or 3.7 percent Uh, unemployment rate, they really want to drive unemployment higher because remember for businesses, business input costs are really driven by labor. Labor is such a heavy expense for most companies, especially in a service economy like we're in today. And so they're going to do one of two things. They're going to either lay people off or they've already tried to make their business uh, workforce light by using technology. We have not seen the issues with the labor market yet. I believe they're coming, and I don't think it's going to be this all-out abyss like 08 and 09. I'm not saying that. I'm not calling for doom and gloom. I've never been a doom and gloomer myself, although I see some of the arguments. I disagree with that. Overall, I am bullish, but what I do think is going to happen is some people that should have never been hired and some of the labor market increases that you saw, some of the job gains you saw during COVID are just naturally going to kind of even out. And and you saw this, like Facebook was 38,000 people, and I think it was 2018, somewhere in there. 
Then they spiked up to 83,000. Their revenue did not grow nearly as quickly as their headcount. And that's what companies do. I can say this as a business owner myself. One of the big metrics you check and watch is revenue per headcount. And if if your revenue is not growing, then your headcount's not growing. And if and if it's really not growing, or if revenue starts to come back down, they are going to lay people off. And and you saw that with Facebook. Facebook did in November last year a big round, eleven thousand people, ten or eleven thousand. Now. They've waited. Why didn't they just do 20000 all at once? Well, one of the big problems companies run into is cash flow. It's it's very expensive to lay people off. So that we, we kind of called that early on. We said, hey, this thing ain't over yet. They're going to do a first round of layoffs in November. They did. Then I said they were going to do a second round. Now they did. I didn't think it would be this soon. I thought maybe it would be towards the end of 2023. But I think what's going on in the business community is the Fed is finally doing its job of scaring the pants off of people. And and people have not been scared yet. They have not been concerned about the damage that the Fed could do to the economy. But I don't blame these businesses because it's hard to give a lot of credibility to the Fed when in 2021 they called all this inflation transitory. And, and that, that was the biggest mistake. They could have gotten ahead of this problem. Obviously, it's easy to play Monday morning quarterback and 2020 vision and all the rest of it. But I, I think um, I think the reality that we can mostly agree on is the fact that they held rates down too low for too long. And, and so that was part of the issue. If they would have started a little bit sooner, I think we would have not avoided completely the mess we're in. Although I do think uh, I do think we could have had a uh, had a little bit softer of a landing. So that's where we're at um, now. Do five percent rates mean that the world is coming crashing down? No, but that's just one of the tools in the Fed balance sheet in in the Fed's toolkit. And, and the other one is their balance sheet. Ever since 08 and 09, the Fed did not do this until 08 and 09. But they now have increased the size of their balance sheet dramatically, holding trillions and trillions in treasuries and mortgage-backed securities. So instead of just using interest rates to fight inflation, they are using this balance sheet technique of either pumping liquidity into the system, flooding the market with liquidity, or pulling liquidity out when they want rates to go up. And so that is where they're at today. Back in 18, the last time rates were going to go, um, uh, rates were going up, the market kind of panicked, like we've talked about, not quite as much as it panicked last year, but the market did panic nonetheless. When they did that, they were also shrinking their balance sheet. They had to abruptly stop during COVID, and then they had to immediately hit pause, adjust. But what happened during COVID with all the money printing is the Fed's balance sheet literally doubled. And it's that that's a fast rate. We have not seen the Fed's balance sheet double like that. Nobody really knows what that does to the permanent inflation problem that we have in the economy today. And I would say it is a problem. It is going to come down at some point, and some of that balance sheet stuff is getting reduced. The assets are down about 5% from their all-time highs. That's actually a good sign just from an inflation standpoint, not a great sign from a slowdown in the economy standpoint. Although, remember, that's not really a bug to the Fed. That's actually a feature. That's what the Fed was looking for is they wanted to slow down the economy. I think they are going to be surprised at how fast it's going to slow down. It's going to slow down a lot faster than they expect. That's my opinion. And then they're going to be playing catch up, hopefully not too late like they did on the front end. 
But again, I wouldn't bank on it. I, I think, you know, the, the problem is, and it's not just, you know, Jerome Powell's fault. It wasn't Janet Yellen's fault, just them by themselves. It's really the fault of this idea that you can centrally plan the economy. And we've been talking about this for a few weeks now, that you cannot do that. You cannot continue to just think, okay, one or two or five or ten people can run the entire U.S. economy. There's just no way. Central planning is a failed idea. Instead, you need to let things kind of be up to market direction and business owners and, and entrepreneurs. Now, this week we don't have an entrepreneur with us, but we've had a couple on the past two weeks telling their stories. And, and they don't really worry about the Fed. They don't really think too much about rates going up or rates going down. They think about how do I deliver value to customers? That's what the government's job should be. The government's job should be, this is these are the rules. Here's the red tape. Here's the basic regulation. And of course you need that. You have to have some regulation. And of course you have to have some taxes. But then my belief is they need to get out of the way of the entrepreneur and let the companies figure things out themselves. And and what we've done in this country now, I would go back to 08 and 09 in particular, is we've created this incentive structure that if a company takes the wrong risk, does the wrong thing, whatever it might be, they basically know that they're going to get a bailout from the government. And, and so the government has started to create winners and losers. They picked the, the like with the SVB and the First Republic collapse, said one of you is going to fail, one of you is going to get bailed out. And so this, this idea that people are not going to take bad risk because of that is not true. And companies are going to behave exactly how they're incentivized to behave. That's the reason this too big to fail idea is just, it, it's not good. It's a bad idea, and we need to get the government out of the business of picking winners and losers. That's exactly what Ronald Reagan said, that government comes in and tries to fix the problems that it first created. We do not want that. We want smaller government. We want the rule of law, personal property rights, but we want the government to shrink in size so that the individual, the entrepreneur, can increase. It's just way too complex for one small group of people to run this. And and that's, I think if you have to pull one lesson away from what's going on with inflation right now is that you just cannot put all your faith and trust and hope into the federal government. It's, it's a bad place to put your hope. And yes, I know entrepreneurs have screwed up and made mistakes and done bad things. I know businesses have done bad things. I'm not saying that they haven't, but one of the realities of market forces are that businesses, if they are given no backstops, if they're not given a bailout, they have to allocate capital. And if they allocate it poorly, then they're going to go out of business. And, and so that's the beauty of capitalism is at least there's a consequence for bad decision making for mistakes in the government realm, uh, there's really no consequences. You, you can make really bad decisions. You can spend money on bad projects. You can print money. You can pull money out of the system. You can make all these decisions and you can still keep your job. That That's really, I think, a big problem that we're going to face for a long time. It's not something that gets solved overnight. Um, one thing on the political side, and I've long said I'm not necessarily a Republican. I'm not necessarily a Democrat. I'm, I'm just a, I, I just stand for, for common sense. And, and one of the common sense things I think that all of us can agree on is the fact that we need to have some term limits in D.C. And, and on both sides of the political aisle, there are people that have been there for 
40, 50, 60 years, and it would be good if we had a little bit of turnover. Not a ton of turnover. Obviously, it's a good thing to have some experience and some gray hair. That's a wonderful thing. But we do need to have at least some sort of limits where there is some some new blood coming in and fresh ideas. Because otherwise, uh, it becomes just a uniparty. And I think that's unfortunately where we're at today. A, a big government, a uniparty government body goes hand in glove with big business, with big bailouts, with, with consolidation and monopolies. They're all friends with each other. And you just do not want that. If you want to have a thriving economy where small business can grow and, and build and compete, you have to get rid of big government. There's just no way around it. So we talked about Meta, we talked about Amazon, we talked about big tech, but one of the things that's sort of interesting here is it's not just the big tech sector that is experiencing layoffs. In fact, now, I saw this report come out this, I think it was yesterday morning, McDonald's, not a big tech company, although they use a lot of tech, I would consider it maybe not even a value company, but just a good U.S. blue chip stock, they are doing layoffs. And it's not to the tune of 10,000. I think it, it's looking more like maybe under a, a thousand people, which is really not a huge deal in the grand scheme of things. But I do think it's interesting to note because you're going to see this more in these standard blue chip companies, more of these value stocks where there will be layoffs there too. I, I think the Fed is sufficiently scared companies. They've scared management teams enough where they've said, listen, we are going to bring inflation under control no matter what the pain, so just be aware. And, and no company wants to be left holding the bag, and, and nobody wants to be left in, as the one CEO that didn't plan ahead. So I think you're going to see more of this where people are going to preemptively do layoffs. They're not going to do 10000 or fifteen or 20000 necessarily, although you will see some of that. I think the broader scale is going to be just a small reduction across the board, which may eventually push us into that 4% zone that the Fed is looking for on unemployment. None of this is surprising. None of this is shocking. I have covered this for probably six months now, these four things that happen in order. And the first thing is the market always goes down. That's a forward-looking indicator of what's coming. The market is the first thing to drop. So by the time you react to the market, it's already too late. It, it, most of the bad news gets priced in almost instantaneously. And then after that, then you start to see layoffs and, and layoffs start to soften and, and the labor market softens. And what that does is it should increase consumer debt and consumer debt usually leads to lower spending and lower spending ultimately will lead to a slower slowdown in economic growth. And at that point, then you'll start to see uh, the third thing, which is company profits will adjust. We are already seeing early signs of that. The fact set research that we follow, I mentioned this last time, is fact set earnings are slowly coming out, not the company itself's earnings, but their earnings insight that covers the S&P 500. And they are essentially showing, and I, I went back to last week's report is about 6%. We pulled up this week's, which is good because a lot of the companies have obviously you know, started uh, have already reported for Q4. Some of the companies are already giving guidance. About 79 out of the S&P 500 um, have given negative guidance. So they're saying, watch out, Q1 earnings are not going to be fantastic. 27 are saying, yes, they're going to be okay. But the number to really watch is the fact that the earnings decline, the estimate that analysts are looking for, is 7% decline in earnings. That is not doom and gloom. You got to remember during COVID, 
earnings declined 32% in the second quarter of 2020 when, with the, when the uh, economy shut down. And, and we're not in that phase today. A 7% decline in earnings is not the abyss that a lot of these analysts were calling for. It's really a slowdown. It's taking a break from all-time highs. Now, I do expect that decline number maybe to go towards the 10% zone here this summer, but it's still not an abyss. Remember last year, the market was trading off 20%, expecting doom and gloom, and that just is not showing up in the data yet. Now, could we be wrong and it gets worse? Sure, but I do not believe that the doom and gloom is to the level that people think it is. Don't panic. Stay the course here. Now, um, let's make one comment about the sectors, and this was something I was warning about early on, is the fact that at the beginning of the year, a lot of these value stocks, these companies in the energy sector, companies in the utilities and the materials, and and, and really these companies that people would say are safe stocks like consumer staples, I thought were trading at too high a multiples. Now, energy stocks are one thing. I, I still think energy stocks are not crazy overvalued. Do not, again, not investment advice, so just take this with a grain of salt. But if you look at the price-to-earnings ratios on any energy companies, they're really not that high. They're, they're actually fairly valued, I think. I don't think they're totally undervalued, but they're not this overvalued mess that we were in in 2014 and 2015. Um, same thing with bank stocks. I mean, bank stocks, now you got to be selective. You have to be careful. But I think a lot of good companies that are in that financial and banking world have just gotten obliterated for, for no reason. They've gotten caught up in this mess. Um, again, would I go out and put half your portfolio into them? Absolutely not. You need to have some parameters. But there are some very good names in the banking sector that have sold off too much. Um, and I, I think the same thing for the energy sector. But when you look at some of the names in the consumer st uh, staples market, they are absolutely trading at sky-high multiples. And, and there are some analysts that have called it perform to perfection multiples. Like they have to come out with earnings and be spot on or else they could see their stocks just get obliterated here. I do think that's true. I, I think you need to be very careful before you go out and buy a consumer staples stock um, for example, and pay a 25 or 30 multiple on earnings. That, that would be, in my estimation, a mistake. I, I would be a little bit more cautious and be looking for value. That's where the security selection, I think, is coming back. Security selection has not been this very important thing for a while. I think it's going to become more and more important to be more selective on what you're buying. And you saw this, I mentioned this last week, I think, in, in episode 106, but you saw this in the early 2000s where we were coming off of the tech bubble. And I'm not saying we were in a tech bubble because obviously multiples in 2000, 1999, 1998 were through the roof. I mean, we're talking an average of 45p ratio on the S&P back then. Today, it's only 17. So it's very hard to say that's apples to apples. However, then we had a financial crisis just 10 years later, 07, 08, 09. That made the period between 2000 and 2010 what people have called a lost decade. And the total return for stocks, not the annualized, but the total return was about 1% for those 10 years. That's why it's a lost decade. Are we in a phase like that now? No, I, I don't believe so 100%. But if you pay the wrong price for stocks right now and you go out and you buy companies that are too high P.E. ratios, you could pay the price for a long time if the growth numbers aren't there. And, and, and there's always two 
basic metrics to a stock's price, there's sentiment and then there's actual earnings and, and growth. And so I think, you know, what will happen is long run, these companies will return to their fundamentals. They'll go back to the, the basics of do we make money? Are we growing? Are we profitable? What are our margins? Do we have a good business model? All that stuff will be important in the long run. But in the short run, sentiment can really drive these stocks. And so if there's perceived risk out there and people are saying we need to get cautious and be careful and watch out and and get current income instead of future income, then people are really going to go after those utility stocks, the consumer staples, all the stuff we talked about. So, of course, there's some utilities out there that are worth buying. Of course, there's some consumer staples that are worth buying. But you just have to be more selective because if you go out and you just buy the index, I think you get, could have some trouble. You could be overpaying for a lot of these companies and uh, and, and uh, be sitting on not a lost decade, but maybe a lost two or three years. So that is the bottom line, my opinion on the sectors and what's going on. Again, this is not all doom and gloom. There's obviously some reality that has to be baked in. And I have long said this, so it's not a surprise to any of our listeners that I don't think the market is going to rip right through the roof. I, I really don't believe that. Unless something, unless the economy stepped on a giant rake here tomorrow and then the Fed was forced to cut to zero, I really don't believe that we are going to go back to record, record, face-ripping all-time highs. Josh Brown, CNBC, who said face-ripping, um, I don't think we're going to go back to that overnight. But... I still don't believe we're going into doom and gloom. I think a lot of that's priced in. A lot of the bad news has been factored into people's estimates. When I talk to the entrepreneurs and the business owners, I talk to a lot of them. They are all in the same camp. They, they believe that the world is coming to an end. They think that things are going to be horrible. But you know what? They've always felt this way. They've always felt that things are horrible. They've always been doomsday preppers. And then when I talk to them after the fact, they go, yeah, it wasn't nearly as bad as I thought. And, and that's just the reality. When you listen to these CEOs come out and you listen to these business owners, there's no incentive. There's no upside to be overly positive and then completely miss. It's better to be bearish and a little bit negative and then come out and beat those expectations, which is why I am expecting not a whole lot of doom and gloom, but at the same time, not expecting this huge spike or march to the upside. So stay on a plan. Um, if you are retired, I have encouraged you keep three to four years of living expenses and short term fixed income. Right now, you can go out and get four and a half percent in the money market You can get five percent on a treasury. That's a good place to park some cash during this time. Not your whole portfolio, because that would also be a mistake. I believe you need to have a plan. You need to say, OK, my living expenses are going to be one hundred or one hundred and fifty thousand or whatever it might be per year. I need three, four hundred thousand of my portfolio in that safer stuff. Let's say you have two million dollars. Well, that doesn't mean you take two million dollars and put a million dollars into the the so-called safe stuff, but you may want to put three or four or five hundred thousand into some of that stuff, and and that would be just fine. I, I think that's a fine way to plan. Um, and maybe you're looking at a 70-30 or an 80-20. Obviously, there's some personal factor in there. But at the same time, if you're retired, you have got to remember your biggest risk is not market volatility. It's not the chance of the market going up or down. Your biggest risk in retirement is that you run out of money because of inflation. So you have to have balance. You have to have it on a plan. 
two years if you're really aggressive, three years if you're kind of moderate, four years of cash in the short-term expense in, of short-term expenses in the treasuries or the money market if you're a little bit more conservative. That way, when you make your withdrawals and you take your required distribution, for example, you're not having to necessarily pull it from the stocks. You don't have to sell anything at a loss. So that's that. And last piece, if you are still working and you are on a long-term investment plan, and I would call it, you know, any anybody who's really at least five years out from retirement, again, you may want to have some in fixed income. You might want to have a little bit there, but I think you ought to be looking for opportunities to add to your portfolio, add to companies that have gotten beaten down. Again, have it on a plan, have some parameters like we do. We do a detailed investment and rebalance process where we uh, have very specific rules on the maximum, like like we're not going to have more than 5 or 6% in one company, or we're not going to have 20% or 25% or more in one sector. Rules like that, you need to get onto a plan. But the reality is, is there's just a lot of really good companies, I think, that are trading at dirt cheap multiples. And if you've got a two, three, four year time horizon, you start buying some of these on a conservative, diversified basis, I think you're going to be very happy with where you're at in the next couple of years. So that's all I got for you today. Again, this was episode 107. So glad you could join us. If you're not getting the weekly articles, send me an email to nick.stenger at stengerfamilyoffice.com. Check out our website, www.stengerfamilyoffice.com. We are a family office that is available to investors of all net worth sizes. We've got four core business lines, and our starting account is only $1,000. So if you're not on a plan, you're not using the critical thinking that we've been talking about on these episodes each and every week, get over to us. Give us a call. Check us out online, www.stengerfamilyoffice.com, or give me a call directly, 630-912-8295. Thanks for being here, and we'll see you next week for episode 108.